322. We have the opportunity to attend so many of these excellent prayer events that are listed here in the worship folder for you. I look forward to seeing many of you come out to these kind homes that have opened them, their doors for prayer and for the, those gathering here at the church facility. We also have elders who have labored hard to put articles in place in that prayer guide that Howard mentioned earlier. Get one of those each for yourselves. Let that be the guide that brings you through Prayer Week 2022. Pray according to the way the elders have have written. Pray according to the way the rest of the body is praying. Those are such a gift. My aim in this message, I tried to capture it in the title, is Christ's Cross Purchases Prayer. I want to so give you a theology of prayer that you will find prayer rising in your heart like you've never experienced it before. That you will say, 2022, I'm going to become a person of prayer like I never have been before. It might have a specific element to it. You might say, I'm going to pray every day in 2022, God being my helper. Or I'm going to pray for the lost in specific, by name, people that I long to see trust Christ. Or I'm going to pray with my family every day. Or I'm going to make sure to be every Lord's Day in prayer with God's people like never before. Or maybe you're going to pray for opportunities to share your faith once each day. And you'll come to the end of each day going through the record of your mind thinking, have I shared my faith with at least one person today? And you'll feel so heavily weighted and burdened before the Lord, if you haven't, that you will ask the Lord with new vigor for his open opportunity to share your faith the next day. Maybe you'll say, prayer for me means it's not going to be just a private thing anymore. I've fallen into the lie that grips this area of the country like a deep freeze in January. That Christianity is just your private religion. It's just what you do with God. Oh no, far from it. Everything that you are on the inside comes out. Out of the heart, the mouth speaks. And out of a heart for God, the mouth speaks prayer. Maybe you're going to say, I'm going to pray in public. I leave that to other people up to now. Not anymore. I'm going to take the lead and I'm going to pray in public. There's all kinds of ways prayer will, will grow and will flourish and it will spring out and it will become visible in your lives. All those are great. That's not what my sermon's about. Rather, my sermon is underneath all that, a theology of prayer that gives rise with nutritious truth underneath those seedlings of prayer. So let's ask God's help that he could show us that here out of Romans chapter 8. Father, I thank you. For the reading of Romans 8, now I pray for the grace to understand and and compel and proclaim Romans 8, 31 to 34 for the dear ones gathered, both by live stream and in the overflow room and in this room. We thank you for the opportunity to revel, to delight in, to savor and enjoy your word for all it's worth. We ask God that you don't let it just uh, bounce off of us, but that you pierce us deeply and transform us gloriously into your image by this word. I pray it in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. Suppose someone came to you and told you you're a litigant in a class action suit and you won and the uh, defendant's going to pay a trillion dollars and they've already paid it. It's in an account that you have access to. It's not in your name, but it's your money. You can spend that money any way you want to on yourself or anyone else. And all you need to do is send a little text with your phone 
sort of the person you want the money to go to or the cause and the amount of money. You don't have access to hold on to the money, but you can spend it any way you like to. What would you, what text would you send? What money would you send where? And how much? That's your prayer life. That's your heart for prayer. Whatever you say, I want the best things to happen to the people and to the needs and to the places that I'm aware of, and all I have to do is simply ask for it. That's my prayer life. God has accrued, as it were, an infinitely high value in the death of his son. The death of Jesus Christ, which we will celebrate at the table shortly here, is of such infinite value and you have full access to it that you can just call out to God in prayer and say, Lord, spend the good blessings of the cross on the nation of China or Russia or Japan or Iran or the United States or on my family or on me. How do you spend the great wealth Christ has purchased on the cross to achieve all the prayers that God ordains to happen? This passage in Romans 8 comes as the climactic chapter. Some call it the great eight out of Romans. You might know from the book of Romans that it's it's one of the most important books that's ever been written by anyone, certainly by above uh, all merely human authored books, and some call it the most important book of the Bible. In Romans 1 through 3, Paul the author says, no one is righteous, all have sinned. And so chapter 4, he says, we all come to God by faith, just like Abraham did. And then he explains what that looks like in 5 through 8. Chapters 5, 6, and 7 show that by faith, We come before God and he removes all our vertical layers of barrier between him. His wrath is removed. His condemnation, his uh, application and, and exposure of our guilt through the law, our flesh and all that causes sin to erupt within us. God removes all of those by his death and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. Then we come to the end of chapter 8, the passage that Howard just read and the surrounding context, and we see that the end of chapter 8 is all about removing and showing that all external enemies have been removed from our walk with God. The first three chapters that I outlined, 5 through 8, are all about vertical barriers removed between us and God. Now, at the climax of chapter 8, no demon, no country, no person, No gathering, no movement, no effort, no idea, no lofty thoughts of any sort or kind can oppose you successfully if you are in Christ. That's the point of Romans chapter 8. So Paul asks questions out of this. And it's these questions I want us to focus on. I want you to see with me how he has prayer in mind. This was new for me. I'd never seen this before in studying Romans 8. He has prayer in mind and he asks these questions to serve as a foundation for your prayer life growing higher, stronger, broader than it ever has before. Look at verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? What does this have to do with my life? Yes, I'm a sinner. I come to you by faith. All the barriers are removed. 
Now you're telling me even external barriers, enemies, demons, and nature are all insulated from harming my life if I'm in Christ? So what do I say to these things? Maybe the most important question Paul could ask, that we could ask, that anyone in the world could ask. What does the world have to say to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, captured so powerfully for us and taught authoritatively in Romans 8? What does the Save the Planet movement have to say about the gospel? What does the black and white and racial uh, and racism movement have to say about the gospel? What does the economic and educational movements of our country or of the world have to say about the gospel? What will we do with Christ? What will the world do with Christ in 2022? It's the all-important question, isn't it? Because if anyone is in Christ, they're a new creation. But if they refuse Christ, if they reject Christ, if they modify him so that he's a different Christ, as Jesus said people will do, then they have no Christ at all. And all that they're doing is simply learning to play the violin on the deck of the Titanic. What do you say we should do with these things, this gospel that Paul has laid out in eight chapters so far in Romans? Well, he answers the question, what shall we say to these things, with four more questions. And these are prayer-creating questions. These are the, these are the outlines that, of my message that I want us to focus on. What Paul will do in asking these questions is he will show all these wonderful connections between your life of faith and the gospel. This is what you and I will do with the gospel. Today, because it's the beginning of prayer week and you'll see this focus on prayer Paul has in just a moment here, we, we will pray because of the gospel. We will say the cross, the gospel, has purchased our ability to come before the Lord to be received by him, to be heard by him, and to have our prayers answered by him. The cross not only purchases our salvation, it purchases our prayer. Someone might ask a paratrooper just about ready to jump out of a troop transport plane 10,000 feet over enemy territory, I, I, I see you've got your parachute packed on your back and you've got your harness connecting to you. Which one of those strings that connects the parachute to your harness is really the one that holds you up? He'll say, I need all of them. It's not just one of those strings. I need every one of them. And then you might look back and say, is there something wrong back there? <laughs> I need all those strings. We need all the connections between this glorious gospel of the parachute and all these connections that connect down to our harness of faith that saves us. Prayer is one of those connections. There are many others in the scriptures. Entire sermon series could be written on the connections between the gospel and how we live out our faith. In fact, that's very much the mandate for what we do here every Lord's Day until he returns. What are the cords, the strings, the ties that connect our life of faith, the harness, and his saving parachute, the gospel. Today we'll look at prayer, and we'll look at it more deeply by these four questions. You can tell Paul has prayer in mind in Romans chapter 8, because just in the paragraph before, he said in verse 26, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. 
And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Prayer is on Paul's mind when he's writing Romans chapter 8. He gets to Romans chapter 12, 12, and he says, pray constantly. So prayer is so clearly embedded in his thinking that he wants us to look at the gospel here on the very first Lord's Day of 2022 and say, what does that have to do with my prayer life? Answering question number one comes in verse, end of verse 31. If God is for us, who can be against us? What does he mean by that? If God is for us, who can be against us? He's asking a question, which is really making a statement, isn't he? Since God loves us, no one can successfully oppose us. That's what he means. If God is for us, who can be against us? We say to ourselves, well, there's all kinds of people against me. There could be all kinds of people against me all the time. Ah, but since God loves us, no one can successfully oppose us. This is a, a, a theological outcome, a truth, a reality that Paul draws out from the entire first eight chapters of the book of Romans. All the truth that's contained there come to the conclusion, if God is for us, that is, if his love is completely 100% lavished upon us through Christ, then who can stand against us? Someone can come and start to oppose me, but I'll just say, you can oppose me all you want, but God is with me. Christ has bought and paid for me. My sin is taken away and my, his righteousness is granted to me, and therefore I stand secure in God. That's the most important thing to remember when you come to prayer. I'm coming to God, and he's 100% for me. If you think God doesn't like you, you're not going to pray. If you think God's angry with you, you're not going to pray. If you feel guilty for sin and you don't think God is pleased with you, you're not going to show up at a prayer gathering. You're not going to have anything to do with prayer in private. You're not going to have anything to do with prayer in public. And you're surely not going to take the lead in prayer in any way because guilt is racking your soul. I just wonder how inside the mysterious things of God, how harmful, patterns of guilt in our lives are to draining and diminishing and weakening our prayer lives in our churches, in our communities, in our city, or in our state, or the United States, or around the world. I can remember going to prayer events. Kath and I as younger believers, not long after we were married, we would go to these massive prayer events. Here in Duluth, I remember going to one, and then also several of them down in the Twin Cities. We'd go to the Metrodome for prayer events. Can you believe it? The Metrodome was a building down there a long time ago. <laughs> Good night. It, 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 I think there's another building there now where it used to, It's just a big old hole in the ground. Oh, my goodness. Where are the all-city gathering prayer events? Where's the all-church-gathered prayer events? Well, they're not going to come by someone standing up and saying, we need to pray more. Hurry, hurry, let's pray, let's pray. Hurry, hurry. That's not going to do it. Prayer doesn't come from being told to pray. Prayer comes from a fresh encounter with God. 
Prayer comes from a stunning realization that God is 100% for you and he's forgiven all your sin. That's what makes people pray. If God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us and no one successfully can oppose us, then pray confidently. Pray confidently. Pray with all boldness. Pray with a volcanic fire inside of you. Pray with a certain serious, urgent, fiery determination. Pray confidently. That's my first challenge to you based on the first question Paul asks. If God is for us, who can be against us? Pray in all confident boldness. Do you know what the early church prayed for the very most of all the other requests they made? They prayed for boldness. Listen to Acts 4. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and with signs and wonders and they are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with all boldness. So does God hear prayers for boldness and confidence? Yes. Does he approve? Yes. Does he answer? Yes. And the building in which they were praying was shaken. In other words, when my son hangs on the cross and the entire earth shakes with my approval of his death on behalf of sinners, so also my son has purchased by his death on the cross the shaking of all things on the earth now by cross-bought prayer. I love John Wesley's quote famously. You've heard this before. I remind you of it again. Give me 100 persons who love only God with all their heart and hate only sin with all their heart, and we will shake the gates of hell and bring in the kingdom of God in one generation. Now, I don't know God's timing, and neither did John Wesley. But what we do know is that God loves to give mighty prevailing prayer, and he loves to shake the gates of hell, and he will do so by people who pray pray in a bold and confident gospel-rooted way. Pray boldly. Enter the presence of the Lord and make it your first business to lay your sins before him. Make it your first business to reorder your relationship with God, to confess whatever you need to confess. Make it your first business to go to the Lord and say, thank you for your son's death on my behalf. Thank you for the blood and the body broken Thank you for how I have peace with you because you have now received on my behalf the sacrifice of your son. That's the foundation of bold, confident, earth-shaking prayer. The second question Paul asks is in verse 32. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? What's the logic of verse 32? Here's the flow of it. God says, I gave you the best possible, most costliest gift I could give you, my son. And if I gave you the best and highest, most expensive gift I could give you, my son, then will I not give you every other lesser thing that you might need, like health and food and life and righteousness and peace and joy? Of course I will give you all those things with him. 
Not separately. I'm not giving you first the big gift and then opening up a bunch of little gifts later that have nothing to do with the big gift. Like at Christmas time, you get a bicycle and you get socks. Maybe you could use those socks while you're riding the bicycle. But that's not the point. This says, I've given you Christ the very best gift I could give you. Which means, I'm holding nothing back from you. All I am is love toward you. You can't ask me for something bigger than my son. I gave you the biggest thing. Therefore, with him, I'm going to give you everything else you need. So think about it for a minute. This means two two further things. One, it means that when Jesus died on the cross, he not only purchased your salvation, he purchased all answers to prayer for you. He did not only redeem your past, but he now, by his death on the cross, completely reveals your future. Think about this with me. Jesus dying on the cross isn't just taking care of the past sins that you've committed. It's guaranteeing, purchasing all the things that you will enjoy in this life and in the heaven to come. You will go around the beautiful, bright halls of heaven and enjoy all the blessings of being in the presence of the Lord forever. And you will say, the cross bought all these things for me. No wonder they never stop saying, in heaven, worthy is the lamb who was slain. Romans 8.32, for some, has been one of the most precious, high, lofty, beloved, dear verses in all the Bible. It means God is so very generous, God is so very powerful, that he reconciles sinners to himself by removing their sin and granting to them righteousness in the gospel, and he reconciles to himself everything else as well. Listen to Colossians 1. For in him, Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. People, music, education, ideas, conversation, food, Every pleasure you can conceive, all these have been redeemed by the cross of Christ. Nature, planets, gravity, time, everything God created, he says, my son's death and resurrection redeems for me. That's why I say, especially because of verse 32, the cross purchases your prayer life. This is why when we go to the Lord in prayer, it's not a throwaway phrase to say at the end, in Jesus' name, amen. That's the biggest phrase of the whole prayer. That's the part that the devil hates. That's the part unbelievers hate. That's the part they hate when you pray in public. I remember when I was asked to pray uh, for the Michigan Congress gathering for 2010. One of the members of the Michigan Congress was a member of the church I was serving, and he got me in to be the prayer person to stand up in front to begin the 
legislative session in Michigan in 2010. And I had to write out my prayer ahead of time. Dear Lord, uh, I, I worship you as the Almighty God and Heavenly Father. And I pray in Michigan you would make abortion as unthinkable as slavery. And all kinds of other stuff like that they wanted me to cut out. And at the end they finally, they finally said... Um, something about, is it necessary to add the phrase, in the precious name of the Lord Jesus Christ? I said, yes! If you want somebody else, don't want that to be prayed, ask somebody else to pray it. They let it go. Actually, what happened, just by way of finishing that account, when I got up there to pray, several people went out, or left, kind of. (laughs) They went to the doors and chatted, or whatever, while I was praying. But God still hears. (laughs) Romans 8.32 is the sign that God is so very generous to us that in the death of Jesus Christ, he has given to us not only the cleansing of our sins and the applying of his righteousness to us, but the answers to all our prayers. He loves to answer prayer, and he loves to answer prayer at the cost of his son. He loves for you to say, not only is my redemption purchased and cleansed through the blood of Jesus Christ, but my entire future has been secured by him. So if that's the way God is, then we should pray not only confidently, but expectantly. We should pray with massive expectation. Listen to some of the ways the New Testament authors talk about this prayer. James writes, you do not have because you do not ask. There's this massive amount of wealth Christ has purchased in the ordering of the world, the providential blessing of the world that we don't ask for. Jesus said, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it, John 14. And many years later, John, writing upon Jesus' teaching by the guidance of the Holy Spirit, said, and this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests we have asked of him. Or James says, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Jesus himself said, fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. So we should pray expectantly. We should pray in the absolute confidence that God will give to us exactly what we pray for in exactly the way we pray it or something far better still. The third question, verse 33, Paul asks, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, which is really him making a bold statement. Since God loves us and has purchased for us our justification, then nobody can bring any accusation against us and have it stick. Oh, people will accuse us, especially if we pray bold, extravagant prayer or bold, expectant prayers. And if we begin even in this third question to pray extravagant prayers, they will oppose us, but none of their accusations will stick. We will be found to be children of the living God, loved and and lavished by his goodness in a way that no one one deserves and, and we know ourselves do not deserve. 
Paul said in Philippians 3, this idea of coming before the Lord, justified, and having him lavish his goodness upon us. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. So Paul comes before the Lord in prayer, and he invites us to come before the Lord in prayer. And the Lord says, I've justified you. No one can bring any accusation against you. So ask of me everything that you can imagine, and I will give it to you. No one will accuse you, and if they do, it won't stick. Ask great things of me. Ask for mighty things that you know only I can do, says God. David the psalmist said the very same thing in Psalm 37, 4. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. You see, that verse is applied this way. When you go before the Lord, bring the desires of your heart. You can think of them. I have a, I have a son or a daughter, a grandson or a grandchild that I, I long for to be healed from a disease or to be saved from sin and to be with me forever in heaven. I have a missionary that I long that you would pray for them to be protected and effective in their mission work. I have a persecuted people that I yearn for you, Lord, to do miraculous things to protect them from their persecutors. I have an entire delusion and hypnotic lies that are gripping our country. Lord, I pray that you would shine the light of your truth into them and explode those hypnotic lies. I have a person who's Dear uh, but ill to me, and Lord, I pray that you would cause a miraculous healing in their bodies. We all have the desires of our heart. We're to bring those desires of our heart with us to the throne room in prayer before the Lord. And we're to say, Lord, before I bring my request to you, I'm going to delight myself in you. I'm going to delight myself in you because the Bible says, if I delight myself in you, the Lord, you will give me the desires of my heart. But you don't want to make the desires of your heart your idolatry. You see what I'm guarding against? Don't let the desires of your heart be the end purpose of prayer. Delighting in God is the end purpose of prayer. So you come before the Lord and you say, Lord, I'm delighting in you, but I have a, I have a list, I have a... I have a um, group of burdens that are so heavy on me that I need to pray them before you, but I want them to be sifted. I want them to be purified so that they don't become idols in my life. We don't want to treat God like a, like a cosmic waiter where we just tap on the table and say, I need a little more lemon for my water. We delight ourselves in him And then we bring to him the desires of our heart. And as we bring them to him, he sifts them. He purifies them. And all of a sudden, we find our desires completely in line with him and with his word. And we find our desires more often enlarged, not reduced. Listen to the way some examples of the New Testament church and how they prayed. Listen to how big their desires are. It's clearly these are their heart desires, but they are delighting themselves in the Lord, and these are then examples of how we can pray, like the New Testament church did, delighting in the Lord with the desires of our heart laid before him, and this is prayer extravagantly. 
In the New Testament, they often ask for miraculous healing through prayer. James 5, let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord, and the prayer of faith will save the sick man, and the Lord will raise him up. They even prayed for the sick unbelievers they knew to be healed, and they were healed in Acts 28. They would ask God to perform signs and wonders for his glory, and now, Lord, grant your servants to speak thy word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal with signs and wonders performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus, Acts 4. They prayed for miraculous deliverance for those in prison. Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. When he realized that he had been freed, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying, Acts 12. And at midnight, God sent an earthquake, and the doors were opened, and Peter was freed. They asked God to raise the dead back to life. Peter put them all outside, knelt down, prayed, and then turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and Peter introduced her back to her family. They asked for God to save their relatives, Romans 10.1. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they might be saved. Over and over and over again, mighty extravagant prayer is the outcome of being convinced that God is for you and that he has fully justified you. If you think that you have to earn your way to God, you hear it in some churches, yeah, 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 I'm saved by grace, but I have to keep myself in by good works. You hear that all the time. If you think that there's something about your relationship with God that depends on you working hard, your prayer life is going to be really thin. And, and prayer with the body of Christ is going to seem really phony. And prayer gatherings and prayer events are going to seem so superfluous that they're not even worth planning for or going to. And you're going to find prayer dying down in your life as a very, very small thing if you think God is done part of your salvation and you, by your effort and work, have to do the rest. But if you're stunned and overwhelmed and blown away by the fact that God has justified you through the sending of his Son, prayer will arise in you more naturally and more automatically and more wonderfully than any other experience you could describe. One of my heroes is a man named John Hyde. He was a missionary to Punjab, India, back in the near end of the 19th century, just breaking into the 20th. He would pray extravagantly for souls in India. He would pray for, the first year he was there, he said, I'm gonna pray that God give me one soul, one to faith in Christ, every day of this first year as a missionary. So he was praying for 365 souls. That year, 400 souls came into salvation in his ministry. So he said, okay, Lord, next year. He, he did that for a few years, and then he, after a few years, he said, I'm gonna double it. I'm gonna pray that you give me two souls every day. So he's praying for over 700 souls in a year to be saved in Punjab, India, in the late 1860s and 70s. And in fact, 800 came in that year he prayed for two souls. And as you can imagine, some years later he said, I'm praying for four souls to be saved every day through me and my ministry. And 1,600 souls were saved that year in the ministry of John Hyde. Recorded in a book and in several history books of revivals that have happened around the world, this revival happened in Punjab, India, because of John Hyde and the praying that he led among many of the missionaries, not just himself, but many others. Here's what Hyde says. Surely Calvary represents a fearful price. So this is what I'm saying. 
The cross is a very high cost. Surely Calvary represents a fearful price. But your soul and mine and the millions thus far redeemed and other millions which may yet be redeemed, a wrecked earth restored back to Eden perfection, the kingdoms of this world wrested from the grasp of the usurper and delivered over to the reign of their rightful king. When we shall see all this, shall we not gladly say, behold the purchase. Behold the purchase. Hyde means that when you think about how big and valuable and precious Christ's death is, you say, Lord, don't let your precious death be wasted. By prayer, I'm going to apply it to every broad and deep and seemingly insurmountable need that I can think of. William Carey, friend of John Hyde, lived a little bit before him, said, expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. Finally, question number four, verse 34. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. No one is there to condemn because Christ Jesus has died And more than that, he was raised from the dead. And he's sitting at the right hand of God. And what is he doing there? He is interceding for us. Just like he did when he lived on earth. John 17 or other examples, the Lord's Prayer, or many other times we look at our Lord praying. That's what he's doing at the Father's right hand right now. And you could broaden it out and say, yes, but by the Spirit of Christ, the whole Bible is written. So it's Christ praying the whole Bible for the whole church before the right hand of the Father. His heart that we saw so plainly on display in all his prayers, all his teaching, all his life ministry, and ultimately in the cross, is a heart being poured out in intercession and prayer before the Father right now. Christ is praying for me and for you right now. He's praying for people in this room and people around this world. He's praying right now according to the word of God, which lasts forever, which is his heart. So my challenge as I close with you is to take you up maybe into the highest challenge you've ever received in in pondering and considering prayer. If we're to pray boldly and with confidence... If we're to pray with expectation, God wants to give us good gifts. And if we're to pray with extravagance because Christ bought a lot of good stuff for us, then we're also to pray, finally, just the way Christ is praying with his heart. He's interceding for us, and he says, when I have transformed your heart to match my own, when you pray, you will be interceding with me with my heart. Your desires will be transformed into mine. As you pray according to my word and as you pray according to the guidance of my Holy Spirit, you'll be praying here on earth for exactly what the Lord Jesus is praying for in heaven. All the desires that you bring, you'll bring to him and say, Lord, here's my heart's desires. And he will say, welcome, bring them and let's purify and sift them to where they match my own. Colossians 1.28, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. 
You will notice, haven't you, that when you listen to people praying, who you can just tell have prayed for a long, long time, and they've known the Lord, they've known the Lord in long seasons of prayer, they've known the Lord through pain, they've known the Lord through hardship and through difficulty, you can hear how they pray. You can hear a tone, a flavor, a sweetness to their praying, a depth to their praying. It comes from learning the whole Bible that the whole Bible reflects the very heart of Christ who wrote it and who's now praying it. And so it's almost like that person praying according to God's word and according to their desires and according to Christ, all three things are connecting together in a marvelous and overwhelming way. Christ's heart, the Bible's teaching, and your own heart all aligned together. That's what I invite you to. That's what I invite you to. Find all the lesser desires that are harming you and others and let them go. Give them up. Replace them with precious desires that match Christ's desires for you, who loves you and wants the best for you and who alone knows all that that includes. We come to the Lord's table. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, come and enjoy the bread and the cup, his body and his blood, broken for you. He he interceded on the cross by giving his body and his blood, and on behalf of the value of his death on the cross, he continues to intercede for us. This is the basis of all prayer here, the Lord's table. Let's ready our hearts for it by praying together right now.